Hey friends, Nina here. You might be hearing some unusual ads before an episode of Already Gone. Apologies, I'm doing my best to weed out political advertisements right now, but sometimes our ad provider is tricked by the advertiser and these ads slip through. So please bear with us as we get through another hectic election season. As always, I do appreciate you listening. And now, on with the show. We all enjoy a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about bizarre events that unfolded in our country's local newspapers, but never made it much further than that. No matter the place or the people, One Strange Thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Michigan is a small community in Wayne County, located to the west of Detroit. Originally inhabited by Native Americans, it was settled by non-Indigenous people in 1825. The first post office was established there in December of 1857, and the post office was named Inkster in July of 1863. As a village, it incorporated from parts of Nankin Township, which later became Westland and Dearborn Township. After some legal battles with the city of Dearborn, Inkster settled out its final borders and became a city in 1964. In the early part of the 20th century, many Blacks working at Ford factories in Dearborn chose to settle with their families in Inkster, as the city of Dearborn was vocal about not welcoming minorities within the city. Even today, Inkster is a primarily Black community. July 9th, 1987, Inkster, Michigan. A squad car arrives at the Bungalow Motel located on Michigan Avenue between Inkster and Middle Belt Roads. Officers Clay Hoover and Daniel Dubiel are at the motel to serve 69-year-old Alberta Easter and her 47-year-old son, Roy Lemons Jr., a warrant for passing a bad check. They wrote a check for $286.40 from a closed account. They used the check to rent an eight-year-old Ford station wagon from a business called Rent a Jalopy. Accompanying the officers to Easter's room was Garland Booker. Booker was the security guard for the bungalow motel. He's going to the room to serve an eviction notice. Rooms 105 and 106 owed $2,464 and the owner of the motel, one Charles Marlowe, he wanted them to leave. Along with Alberta and Roy are Alberta's two other sons, 
45-year-old George Lester Lemons, and 43-year-old William Monroe Lemons. After knocking on the door of Easter's room, Officers Dubiel and Hoover are allowed in. Garland Booker joins them. After they explain why they are there, Alberta raises questions about the validity of the warrant and the two officers call in a supervisor. Sergeant Ira Parker answered the call. And while they are on the phone with the sergeant, motel security guard Garland Booker serves the eviction notice and leaves the room. A few minutes later, Sergeant Parker arrives at the motel. He is met by Booker and they had a short conversation. Sergeant Parker then knocked on the door to the room of Alberta and her sons and entered. Moments later, gunfire erupted. Motel owner Charles Marlowe barreled out of his office shouting, What are you doing? Are you crazy? One of Alberta's sons exited the room and sprayed the motel parking lot with gunfire. He yelled, Get back or I'll shoot. Marlowe ran back into his office and called the police. It didn't take long for Officer Gary Lorenzen to arrive. He would later tell reporters, quote, We were met with automatic gunfire. We took cover and called for additional help. When another police cruiser shows up, it too is sprayed with bullets. 20-year-old Sherry Clark Gammons in room 104 woke to the sound of yelling and hid under her bed for safety. She pulled the phone to the floor and called her parents in Westland. She would stay on the line with them throughout the night. Sherry was one of the lucky ones, because she will walk away from the bungalow motel unharmed. Within minutes, the motel is surrounded by police. Officers place a call to the room hoping to talk with someone. They're trying to defuse the situation. Alberta Easter is the only one who will talk to them. She says, The police officers are fine. They're being held hostage in the bathroom as a guarantee that she and her sons would get out of this situation alive. Alberta is in dire straits here. She's got a warrant for her arrest for the bad check. They're being evicted from the motel that they've been living in for months, and now they've taken three police officers hostage in their motel room and exchanged gunfire with police. Alberta said she wants to talk with Channel 7 News. Reporter Bill Proctor came on the line and he talked to Alberta off and on for 25 minutes. Listeners, if you grew up in the Detroit area as I did, you may remember Bill Proctor. He was an African-American reporter with the ABC affiliate station for more than 30 years. But Easter wasn't getting what she wanted from the conversation with Proctor, so she said she wanted to talk with someone else. As police try to get someone on the phone with Alberta Easter to help defuse the situation, Reverend Jim Holly, pastor of Detroit's Little Rock Baptist Church, he used a bullhorn to try and coax the four out of their room. He, too, wanted a peaceful resolution to the situation that was unfolding just steps away from busy Michigan Avenue. At some point during the night, negotiations broke down. SWAT arrived, and they wanted to use their tactics to strong-arm the situation to a close. Heavy gunfire came from the room for about 30 minutes. SWAT then used tear gas grenades, and the shooting stopped. At 3.15 a.m., Ten hours after the hostage situation began, one of the men inside of the rooms walked out with his hands up in surrender. Police put him face down on the pavement and searched him. Once he's cleared, he is handcuffed and placed in a police vehicle where he is then taken to jail. 
It only takes 25 minutes before the rest of the family surrenders and is out of the room, on the ground, and searched. When it was all over, the area was surrounded by hundreds of officers and spectators. Hundreds of shots had been fired. Once in custody, Alberta and her sons are quiet. A police officer would later say to a reporter, quote, The only one that talked was the one son who had the kidney condition. He came out on his hands and knees and said he needed medical treatment. A six-man state police tactical team was the first to enter the room, and what they found was truly horrifying. Officer Hoover, Officer Dubial, and Sergeant Parker are dead on the floor, their bodies concealed beneath mattresses and blankets. When the coverings were removed, investigators saw that their remains were riddled with bullet holes. The gunshot wounds were not the worst of the damage. One man is missing an arm. Another had his face blown away by gunfire. When the coroner examined their remains, he could not determine the order in which the men had died, but they were likely slain in the minutes after Sergeant Ira Parker entered the motel room, hoping to clarify the warrant situation for Alberta Easter. The small community of Inkster, a primarily black city, had never lost an officer in the line of duty. Now, they had lost three officers in one horrific day. So, what exactly happened? Why did the situation devolve the way that it did? Come with me to late afternoon, July 9th, 1987, when the routine activity of serving a warrant turns into a deadly gunfire-studded standoff between police and a family. When Alberta and her boys emerged from their rooms at the dingy bungalow motel, officers who'd been waiting on site for hours had no idea what they were facing. They didn't realize the horror that had unfolded that day. They took the foursome responsible for the standoff into custody. And while it was, quite literally, the middle of the night, the investigation began immediately, and police turned to their main witness, Garland Booker. Booker, security officer at the bungalow motel, was the last to see the officers alive other than their killers when he served the family their eviction notice. He said that Alberta was enraged when she opened the door and saw the police officers, saying, quote, It's not going to be like it was before, Booker said. She started getting really radical, cursing. She started saying, quote, This is a bunch of bullshit. Somebody's out to get us. We ain't done nothing. Her son William began repeating what his mother was saying, which got the whole group riled up. And it's worth mentioning at this point that Alberta and her three sons are black. Officers Dubiel and Hoover were white. And the white officers are joined by their sergeant, Ira Parker, who is black. Remember, Sergeant Parker was called in because Alberta Easter had questions about the warrant. A warrant regarding a $286 bad check, a check that was made out to rent a jalopy, for the use of an eight-year-old Ford. That check was written on a closed checking account, and in the 80s, you didn't have a digital way to check if the check was good. You couldn't verify if the check was good. You had to wait until the bank processed it. Garland Booker described how upset Alberta Easter was, and Officer Dubiel managed to calm the situation 
before Alberta erupted again and demanded a supervisor. This was about the time that Booker noticed that William had a gun in his waistband and that George Lemons, he was standing behind the door to the room holding an automatic rifle. Booker did not feel comfortable in this situation, and he also did not want to provoke an incident, so he did not say anything to the officers about the two armed men. And I'm guessing that the officers were well aware of the weapons in the room, and that they were trying to defuse the situation by bringing in their sergeant to assist. The door to the motel room is open, and Alberta sees the motel's owner walking across the parking lot, and she calls to him. Garland Booker sees this as his opportunity to get out of the room, a decision that likely saved his life. He told Alberta that he would get the motel owner for her, and when Booker caught up to Marlowe, he told him, do not go into that room, Alberta's sons are well armed. At this point, Booker makes his own phone call to the police. He's connected to Sergeant Parker. Parker is responding to the officer's call for backup. Booker warns Sergeant Parker about the guns in the motel room. When Sergeant Parker arrives at the site, Booker says that he intercepted him and told him again about the weapons. Booker says that Sergeant Parker told him, don't worry, I've got a gun of my own. And it was only a few moments after Sergeant Parker knocked on the door and entered the room that the security guard heard a burst of automatic gunfire, followed shortly after by heavy caliber pistol fire. At that point, Roy Lemons ran out of the motel room and sprayed the parking lot with gunfire. Booker and Marlowe ran back into the manager's office taking cover. Marlowe got his own gun and returned fire. When Roy heard the return fire, he retreated back into the motel room. Within minutes, additional police arrive at the site, and the standoff begins. Local officers are soon joined by Michigan State Police, the FBI, and members of other departments. After talking to Garland Booker, police get a clearer view of what happened, but they also wanted to talk to Alberta and get her side of the story. The problem was, Alberta is not exactly forthcoming. In July of 1987, Alberta Easter is 69 years old. She was originally from Toledo, Ohio, but settled in the Detroit area later in life. Alberta had big dreams for herself and her boys. She talked a good game about a record company that they were going to start, how she and her sons knew people, famous people. She and her sons were connected to greatness, a greatness that would soon belong to them. The reality of the situation? Her family was broke. They made a living doing small-time scams and schemes. On the outside, Alberta and her sons dressed nicely. People often thought they were rich folks who had fallen on hard times. Alberta would say, almost apologetically, that she needed to liquidate her assets. Then they would be back on their feet. Once she liquidated her assets, the family would have plenty of money to flash around. She needed to liquidate her assets. Spoiler alert, there are no assets. Alberta Easter carried around photo albums with pictures inside that made their lives seem larger than they were. She did this in order to impress prospective bankers and business partners. The albums were filled with carefully edited and curated pictures. Some of the photos were with celebrities, famous people the boys had driven during their stint as limousine drivers, or celebrities they met at signings or other public events. 
If you crop the image a certain way, it suddenly looks more intimate and friendly. This family had a history of problems paying back loans and rent. In July of 1983, George was ordered by a judge to pay back $7,400 from a loan he took out from Wayne Bank. Earlier in 1983, a Cadillac from Don Massey Cadillac in Plymouth was repossessed from the family. One high-dollar scheme they tried to pull was with James Netter, a real estate broker from the city of Wayne, Michigan. They wanted to work with James to create a $3 million development package for the city, but the plan never went anywhere. What James did get out of the encounter was good insight into Alberta and her boys. Netter confirmed what others would say about the family's obsession with the idea that they were being persecuted. Persecuted by the FBI. Persecuted by Interpol and by white business owners. He said of the family, quote, They were paranoid. They once told me their neighbor cut his hedges to spy on them. Information gathered about the family, a down-on-their-luck group with their fake-it-till-you-make-it ideals, and a suspicious attitude toward authority, well, it didn't make Alberta more forthcoming with investigators. And if she wasn't willing to talk, then police would get the story the old-fashioned way, through their investigation. In their search of the rooms, investigators found several notes that were antagonistic toward police. Alberta felt like law enforcement was trying to poke their noses into her business. During their search of the motel rooms, they also found gas masks and a horde of weapons. Ballistics tests would prove that the officers were killed by guns found in their motel rooms. After witness interviews and their own investigation, they pieced together the events of that afternoon. Officer Dubiel and Hoover showed up at rooms 105 and 106 at approximately 5 p.m., This was to serve Alberta and Roy with a warrant. George and William are also in the room. Alberta argued about the merit of the warrant, saying that it's a civil matter, not a criminal one. The officers requested backup, and Sergeant Parker arrived. At this point, there are seven adults in a motel room. Picture the room. It's a kitchenette. There are two double beds. There is a closet and a bathroom. It's not a large space. But at that moment, just after five o'clock on a hot July afternoon, there is Alberta Easter and her three boys, and there are also three of Inkster's finest. Alberta and two of her sons are gathered near the entrance to the room, and the officers are standing nearer the bed and the window. Outside, it's hot. Temperatures are near 90 degrees, and thunderheads are building in the late afternoon sky. The clap of thunder will not be as loud as the sound of gunshots inside the motel. Based on interviews, the first shot came when Sergeant Parker put his hand on Alberta's elbow and said, Come with me. It's thought that the three officers were shot and fell where they stood. After the officers were down, one of the sons left the motel room and sprayed the parking lot with gunfire. He then re-entered the room and the family barricaded themselves inside rooms 105 and 106. They began firing out of the rooms again once police and FBI surrounded the motel. A 10-hour standoff ensued, during which the family used gas masks to withstand a tear gas barrage. A SWAT team was on site, ready to storm the two motel rooms, but the police, who were talking to Alberta, they were hesitant to use SWAT as they believed the officers were still alive and being held captive, perhaps back in the bathroom of the unit. 
After hundreds of shots were fired, the standoff ends, and the bodies of the officers are discovered at 3.40 a.m. The community is ready to take Alberta and her sons to trial for first-degree murder. But before that, they have to bury their dead. The funerals for the officers were so large because of the number of neighboring officers that came to pay their respects. The day of the funeral, there were traffic jams and it taxed local officers charged with overseeing the processional. The wives and children of Sergeant Parker and Officer Dubiel received $50,000 in death benefits from the U.S. Department of Justice. That's about $115,000 in today's money. Officer Hoover's family did not qualify because he was single and was not the sole supporter of his parents. The National Organization for Victim Assistance came into town to help with counseling needs for anyone who needed it. Sergeant Parker was buried in Augusta, Arkansas, while Officers Dubiel and Hoover were buried not far from the city where they worked and met their premature end. Officer Clay Hoover was 24 years old at the time of his death. He had only been on the job for four months. He was an accomplished scuba diver with experience helping the neighboring Van Buren Township Police Department when they needed to retrieve drowning victims. Hoover was described as ambitious, someone looking to work his way up the ranks of the police department. A longtime resident of Wayne, Michigan, Officer Hoover took law enforcement classes at Henry Ford Community College and at Madonna University, my alma mater before he graduated from the Detroit Police Academy in April of 1985. After graduating from the academy, Officer Hoover worked part-time as a Van Buren officer, as well as working as a security guard at the Harbor Club Apartments in Belleville. This was before he took the full-time position in Inkster. Right before he was hired on in Inkster, he became engaged to Melissa Chimaluski, a waitress at the Ann Arbor Elks Club. Friends described the couple as very much in love. They also said the couple was saving up to buy a home. This was a tragic way for their love story to end. Officer Daniel Dubiel was 36 years old. He joined the Inkster Police Force in 1974. And he was president of the Inkster Police Officers Union, so you know that he was a greatly respected officer who cared about the men and women he worked with. Nicknamed Dub. His friends said that he loved to hunt and fish. Dubiel and his wife had four children aged 15, 10, 5, and 3. His wife was pregnant with their fifth child when he was killed. It was his oldest daughter who addressed the press in the days following his death, asking for both privacy and prayers for their family. Sergeant Ira Parker was 41 years old. He was originally from Augusta, Arkansas, which is located about 60 miles north of Little Rock. Sergeant Parker was a veteran, having spent four years in the Air Force where he was promoted to sergeant in the military police. After his time in the service, he moved to Michigan and initially began working at the Ford Motor Plant. He joined the Inkster Police Force in 1972. In December 1983, he was promoted to sergeant. Sergeant Parker lived in Westland with his wife and four children. He was highly praised by both his neighbors and his co-workers as a good and decent man. While they were uncooperative with the police, Alberta and her sons were very talkative, both at their arraignments and with the media. 
Alberta, Roy, and William were arraigned the day after the standoff while George was arraigned a little later. I believe he was hospitalized after he was taken into custody. Outside of the courtroom, Alberta told the press, quote, They jumped us, so we fought back. She also yelled, They shot each other. At his arraignment, George said, quote, It wasn't felonious and it wasn't premeditated. It just happened in a split second. Alberta gave her side of the story to the Detroit News. According to her, William heard a knock at the door and opened it. When the police introduced themselves and asked for Alberta, Williams invited them inside of the room. The officers then informed Alberta that they were there for bad checks. She said the warrant was not valid. During this time, Alberta made sure to remark that the officers were very gentlemanly and respectful. With her permission, one of the officers called for a supervisor. Alberta spoke to Sergeant Parker over the phone. He said he was coming over there, and she said that was fine. After a short time, Sergeant Parker arrived with Garland Booker, who presented Alberta and her sons with the eviction notice. It was at this time that she saw Marlowe, the motel owner, in the parking lot. So she waved him over. Booker said he'd go get Marlowe and left the motel room. Alberta then claimed that Sergeant Parker reached for her neck and said, Well, cut out all this bullshit and let's go. She ducked away, but he hit her arms and pushed her head. Then Sergeant Parker pulled out his gun and fired the first shot. The other two officers then turned out the lights and drew their weapons to back up Sergeant Parker. That's a great story, isn't it? But Alberta goes on. There was also gunfire coming from outside the building as well. That's when Roy opened the door, but he was met with gunfire, so he closed it. Alberta ended her story by saying that someone got on the roof of the motel and shot down into the room, killing the officers. Alberta insists that the three officers were killed by other police officers, police officers who were outside of the room at the time of the shooting. And listeners, remember that ballistics tests were run, and these tests determined that the shots that killed the three policemen came from weapons belonging to Alberta's sons. Investigators knew the guns used against the officers had to be high-powered because the bulletproof vests being worn by two of the officers were completely shredded. At the time of the shooting, it was just the three officers, Alberta and her boys, the motel owner and the security guard. That's it. There were no other police officers on site. In the months leading up to the trial, Alberta, Roy, and George underwent testing to see if they were mentally competent to stand trial. William, on the other hand, he was ready to start his trial immediately. Although most of the family went through testing, Alberta objected when Roy's attorney requested that Roy receive additional and long-term evaluation. Assistant Prosecutor Douglas Baker asked Wayne County Circuit Court Judge Richard Hathaway if he would send Roy to the State Center for Forensic Psychiatry, a facility located near Ann Arbor, because the staff there had the capability to do the kind of testing Roy required. Throughout this hearing, Alberta repeatedly shook her head and mouthed the word no. But it wasn't up to her, it was up to the judge. Roy's defense attorney, Samuel Sharikian, said the prosecution was, quote, shopping around, trying to find the right doctor to come to court and make the case. Sharikian did file notice that he may use the insanity defense for Roy, but he withdrew that a month and a half before the trial started and I'm wondering if Alberta influenced his decision to withdraw the defense. 
Alberta stayed busy as she was awaiting trial. She was constantly firing her lawyers. Her first court-appointed attorney was Monzi Wilson, but she fired him after a few days. Then, Charles Campbell, the self-proclaimed murder king of Detroit criminal attorneys, was hired. And she liked him, but two months before she was supposed to go to trial, Alberta fired Charles Campbell because she felt that he wasn't filing enough pretrial motions. She'd seen her son's attorneys filing pretrial motions, and she thought Charles Campbell should be doing the same. Then Judge Hathaway appointed Gerald Evelyn to represent Alberta. Attorney Charles Campbell would go on to describe Alberta as a unique client, one who needed, quote, special tender loving care. Any lawyer who comes in has to understand that she thinks of herself as a mother as well as a defendant. She wants an attorney who has one eye on her and one eye on her children. Gerald told the judge that he felt he had time to be ready for the trial at the end of March, and this was with him being appointed in mid-January. Alberta's attorneys were not the only ones busy before trial. Lawyers for each of the defendants filed pretrial motions to have the charges reduced or outright dismissed, but they were all denied by Judge Hathaway. What Hathaway did agree to was to allow the trial to run only Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. This would allow George Lemons to receive dialysis treatments for his kidney problems. On the other hand, an abbreviated weekly schedule would cause the trial to run for several weeks longer than expected. And a few weeks before the trial began, a hearing was held about utterances George made to his nurse at the Wayne County Jail, as well as things he said to an officer. Nurse Roland Muirhead listened as George admitted that he fired the first shot against the officers. He said he was afraid they were going to hurt his mother. Muirhead reported George Lemon's confession to deputies at the jail. The court also heard about a similar statement that George made to Sergeant Michael Winters. Despite advising George about self-incrimination, George went ahead with his confession. Sergeant Winters testified, George Lemons started to cry. He advised me that the police had grabbed Mrs. Easter by the throat, and one of the brothers pushed the officer back, and the police officer went for his gun, and that he, George, grabbed the rifle and started to shoot. Right before the trial was set to begin, Alberta called the Detroit Free Press to complain about a picture they printed of George that she found unflattering. While on the phone with them, she changed her story about how the police officers died. Instead of Sergeant Parker being rough with her, she said he came in very nice. And she admitted that maybe she did provoke him, and that after she provoked him, Sergeant Parker fired a warning shot. Then a thunderstorm knocked out power in the room while Sergeant Parker fired his gun. She said that after the lights went out, someone outside the window sprayed the room with automatic gunfire. Since the officers were standing by the window, apparently that's when they got shot. She contended that she didn't even know they were dead until the standoff was over. She thought they'd run into the bathroom where they were hiding. Based on the amount of blood left behind at the scene and the steps used to conceal the bodies beneath mattresses and blankets, I'm going to call bullshit on that one, Alberta. The last of the pretrial motions were all denied. George tried to have his trial separated from his family. Alberta again tried to have her lawyer replaced. This time she wanted former Wayne County Commissioner Rose Mary Robinson. Denied, denied. The jury was selected and the trial moved forward, albeit over a month later than originally planned. 
And right off the bat, defense attorneys knew they were in for a challenge. The prosecution unveiled 250 pieces of surprise evidence. The defense attorneys were angry that they didn't have time to look at the evidence prior to the trial, so Judge Hathaway gave them two days to look through it. He also agreed that defense attorneys would get weekly notice throughout the trial of the 115 expert witnesses set to testify on behalf of the prosecution. A little bit of advance notice would give the defense time to create questions. The trial took 13 weeks, that's more than three months, and many of the delays were because of George and his dialysis treatments. On August 8, 1988, Alberta Easter and her three sons, William, Roy, and George, are found guilty of first-degree murder. The jury deliberated for 17 hours before reaching their decision. A first-degree murder conviction in Michigan carries a mandatory life sentence without possibility of parole. Michigan is not a death penalty state, so life without parole is the harshest sentence available. George Lemons died in prison in 1996. Alberta Easter died in prison on June 13, 2011, from natural causes. She was 93 years old. At the time of this writing, William Lemons is incarcerated at the Gus Harrison Correctional Facility in Adrian, Michigan. He is 76 years old. His brother, Roy Lemons Jr., he's at the Macomb Correctional Facility in Lenox Township, and he is 80 years old. Had the officers survived that afternoon in Inkster, Sergeant Parker would be 74, Officer Hoover would be 58, and Officer Dubiel would be 70. Though long closed, the Bungalow Motel made the papers when a columnist wrote about the strip of old motels on Michigan Avenue motels that had been converted to cheap apartments. And each motel has its own story, but the Bungalow Motel will forever be remembered as the place where three officers lost their lives over a bad check. And sadly, this is not the last time the Inkster Police Department would be touched by tragedy. In June of 1994, Officer Kenneth Woodmore was shot and killed after stopping a man on a bicycle. Woodmore had witnessed the man complete a drug transaction. The suspect pulled a handgun and shot Officer Woodmore five times. Woodmore was a five-year veteran of the force, and he left behind a wife and four children. The Already Gone podcast releases new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. This week's episode was written by Brittany Martinez, researched and performed by me, Nina Instead. Our audio production is done by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.